Let's talk finance. Wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot? Yahoo Finance does just that. It consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis, making it easier to manage your investments. Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. In my early days, I faced a pivotal moment in my career. Instead of following the herd into traditional finance, I charted my own course. Despite skepticism, I founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility. Through perseverance, I established myself as a leading voice in finance, proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed. To get what you want, sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. That's what Harry's did. Seeing people tricked by expensive razors, Harry's took a stand. Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harrys.com gold for a $3 trial set. The Peter Schiff Show. I'd like to thank my brand new sponsor, Bambi, for supporting the Peter Schiff Show podcast. HR manager salaries average $75,000 a year. Only Bambi gives you a dedicated HR manager for just $99 a month. Get your free HR compliance audit at Bambi.com gold. Spelled B-A-M-B-E-E dot com slash gold. Well, the markets finished a positive week on a relatively quiet note. It was a mixed bag. You had the NASDAQ and the Russell 2000 positive on the day, while the S&P and the Dow were down. The Dow was down 179 points, uh, 0.57%. The big drag on the Dow was IBM, which was out with earnings after the bell yesterday, but before the open today, and IBM was down just under 10%, 9.9%. I don't know why anybody is surprised when IBM misses its numbers, because I think it happens pretty much every time it reports. You know, IBM has really been the poster boy, or it was, for massaging earnings, manipulating earnings, and now a lot of those chickens have been coming home to roost and uh, they haven't been able to hide the bad numbers anymore. And so uh, they're being released and the stock routinely gets hammered uh, when those numbers come out. Also, gold stocks 
had a positive week, as did the price of gold, although there was a lot of selling pressure on gold this morning, kind of out of nowhere. Gold got hammered. I mean, it was down over 30 bucks early in the morning. No real reason for the move, although gold did manage to cut its losses about in half, I guess by the end of the day, down about 17 bucks, still closing the week above 1850. Silver, though, was still down better than 40 cents, about 49 cents. Again, still had an overall positive week, uh, but ended the week on a relatively sour note. Although all of the macroeconomic fundamentals could not be more positive for gold and silver. So today's sell-off makes no sense against the backdrop of what's going on, although this seems to be par for the course that the metals have been following for the entire bull market. And my advice has always been just to take advantage of uh, the dips and to use them as an opportunity to buy. In fact, one of the most bullish factors should be Joe Biden's uh, executive orders. Not too long before I began recording this podcast, Joe Biden was on live television announcing his new executive orders designed to aid the economy in this pandemic during its time of trouble. And I want to start off the podcast by really going over two aspects in particular of uh, what Biden had to say. Number one has to do with deficits. According to Joe Biden, the economists all agree. And of course, there are lots of idiotic Keynesian economists who do agree, but there are many economists who actually understand economics who would disagree vehemently with what those economists uh, uh, have to say and President Biden. But according to Biden, we need to take advantage of these low interest rates. The federal government needs to borrow even more money. We need to run even bigger deficits than the enormous deficits that we're already running, right? We need to run bigger deficits to take advantage of these low rates. So we need to borrow all this money while the rates are so low and then have the government invest it. And of course, by invest, they mean spend because the government doesn't really invest any money. It's not getting a return, it just spends it. And of course, most of the money that the government is spending, right, it's giving it to citizens who go out and spend it. So it's not an investment. They just like to use the word investment to make it sound like they're doing something good, but they're not. They're just going out and spending the money. Now, there's several things wrong with this uh, supposed opportunity that we don't want to squander. One is the duration of the debt. It's not like the U.S. government is locking in this cheap money for 30 years. It's not doing that. Most of the debt is being financed with T-bills, short-term paper. So yes, we borrow a bunch of money now, and in the short run, we get these low interest rates. But what happens when interest rates rise and now that short-term debt matures and we have to roll it over into a much higher interest rate environment? You see, Joe Biden completely ignores that massive risk because this debt is not going to be financed with 30-year bonds. If the government tried to finance it with 30-year bonds, 30-year rates would rise sharply. The only way to take advantage of these low rates is to borrow in the short-term market, 
which means we are exposing the taxpayer to the enormous risk that rates go up. So we're not really taking advantage of these low rates. We're simply exploiting them in the short run, but we're setting ourselves up for a huge a cost when these artificially low rates are a thing of the past. So that's number one. But number two, the biggest irony here is that the only reason that interest rates are so low is because the national debt is already so huge that the Federal Reserve is forced to artificially suppress interest rates so the U.S. government can afford to service the enormous debt that it already has. So now Biden wants to take advantage of the fact that interest rates are so low by making that enormous debt even bigger when rates are only so low because we can't afford the debt that we have. So if we can't afford the debt that we have, what's going to happen when we make that debt much bigger because the Fed is keeping rates so low? And see, this is the moral hazard. This is the problem that the Federal Reserve has created by enabling all this debt. The government is further taking advantage of what the Fed has done, right? You give the government an inch and they take a million miles. If the Federal Reserve did the right thing and allowed interest rates to go up now, right, not only would it stop the government from taking on bigger debts because it wouldn't have the ability because rates would go up, but it would force the government to shrink the debt that it already has. The government would have to be responsible if the Fed did the right thing and allowed interest rates to rise. But because the Fed doesn't have the guts to do the right thing, because it's doing the reckless and irresponsible thing by keeping rates artificially low, they're actually creating a situation where now the government is going to take advantage of what the Fed is doing by using that as an opportunity to go even deeper into debt. And of course, all of this extra debt that Joe Biden wants to take on is all going to be financed by the Fed. The Fed is going to print all the money to buy up all these bonds because no private investor in their right mind is dumb enough to lend the U.S. government money uh, at such low rates of interest when they're creating so much money, which, as I said, this is a great reason to be buying gold or silver. So why people were selling gold and silver on a day where Joe Biden makes such a reckless announcement makes no sense whatsoever. And I expect a rather quick rebound. But probably what was even worse was what Joe Biden said about unemployment. And this is a change that he is already enacting, I guess, by executive order. And what Joe Biden said is that it's not fair for Americans to have to choose between work and health, meaning that employers are trying to get workers to come back to work, right? Offering them their jobs back. Maybe they were temporarily laid off and the bosses are like, you know, we'd like you to come back. And Biden pointed out if they refuse to go back to work, they no longer qualify for unemployment benefits. Because remember, unemployment benefits in theory, right, you're only supposed to get those if you're looking for a job and you can't find one. Because if you're offered a job and you don't want it, well, then you're not really unemployed. You're basically retired. And so unemployment is not supposed to be a retirement plan. It's supposed to be money to tide you over until you get a job that you are looking for. 
But what Biden has said is, oh, this isn't fair. We don't want a situation where somebody loses their unemployment benefits because they don't want to go back to work. And the reason, of course, they may not want to go back to work is because it may not be safe, right? Because they don't want to risk getting COVID. So what Biden has now done with his executive order is he's saying that if workers don't want to go back to work because they are worried about getting COVID or for maybe some other health-related reasons, or maybe they have some other things they have to do, right, uh, that interfere with work, that they're able to turn down a job offer yet still get their unemployment benefits. Now, this is a disaster in the making. This is a moral hazard of extreme proportions. And what it really amounts to is the beginning of universal basic income. Now, on the surface, right, it probably sounds compassionate. Yes, why should people have to choose between work and potentially getting sick, right? But we make that choice all the time. I mean, everybody who goes to work gets a risk. I mean, there's always a risk that you can get sick at work. I mean, if it wasn't COVID, it's something else. I mean, clearly, if you stay at home, you are less likely to catch a cold or any other disease than if you go to work and you interact with other people. I mean, clearly, if you get in your car and you drive to work, well, there's a risk that you might get into a car accident. You could get, you could die, but you still go to work. And there are a lot of people that actually have jobs where there's a lot of risk. They operate heavy machinery. You know, they, they could get hurt. You could die. You know, people work in mines. The mines cave in, they die. So there's all sorts of risks that people accept when they go to work. So people choose. You choose between going to work and accepting the risks and not working. Now, if you choose not to work, then you lose your income. So people always weigh the benefits with the cost. Yes, if I go to work, I could get hit, you know, I could die in a car accident on my way to work, or I could catch cold, or I could slip on a banana peel, you know, in this, and, and die or whatever. I can avoid those risks by staying home, but then I don't have any income. And then what risks do I have if I have no income, right? Maybe I don't, I don't have enough to eat, you know, so, or I don't have enough to pay my rent. Now I'm homeless. And what are the risks of that? So everybody has to trade off or, you know, the, the cost benefit analysis. And most Americans are going to choose to accept the risks inherent with going to work in order to avoid the risks inherent with losing your income, right? Well, what Biden wants to do is totally skew the playing field. He wants to make it so Americans can say, you know what, I want to avoid the risks associated with working, but I can still have all the money. I can still get paid to stay at home, and now I get the money, and I don't have to take all the risks associated with working. So this is what's going to happen. You're now going to have a whole category of Americans. And I'm not blaming the Americans for making a rational choice. I mean, why go to work if you don't have to? If the government gives you an excuse not to work, take advantage of it. And if you don't, somebody else will. Look, I agree. Everybody who goes to work has a risk of getting COVID, right? Now, you reduce that risk by staying at home. So that means everybody, by definition, can say, I don't want to go to work. I don't want to take that small risk of getting COVID. I'm going to stay at home and collect my extended unemployment benefits. So these people are not going back to work. 
Right? Most of the people now who are unemployed, Joe Biden has made it so that they never have to go back to work. And we have created this idea that you can choose not to work. If you don't like the risks associated with working, you don't have to accept those risks. Everybody else is going to take care of you. Society is going to take care of you. You know, Biden made a big point of repeatedly mentioning, you know, people are out of work for no fault of their own, no fault of their own. Well, that may be true, except if they're offered a job and they don't want to accept it because they might get COVID, that's their own fault. They've they've made that choice. Other people are choosing, you know what, I'm going to risk it. And maybe I'll wear a mask or maybe I'll, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll be careful what I do or I'll wash my hands or whatever. They're trying to guard against the risks. But it's, it, it is, you are partially to blame if you decide that you don't want to work. And of course, people lose their jobs for reasons that are not their fault all the time. That doesn't mean society is obligated to take care of them. People are supposed to save money for an unexpected rainy day, for when something bad happens, that's not your fault. Now, if you have no savings for a rainy day and then it rains, well, the rain isn't your fault, but the fact that you don't have a rainy day fund, that is your fault. Now, of course, part of the blame goes on government for incentivizing people not to save for a rainy day, right? Artificially low interest rates and all these other government programs that undermine the incentive to save. So there's plenty of blame to go around. But you can't simply say if bad things happen that are not your fault, the government's going to take care of you, especially when the government is broke and doesn't have any money to take care of anybody. And the only way to get the money is for the government to print it. And if you actually need a real world example of how this moral hazard is going to play out all over the country, now that Biden has signed this executive order, look no further than Chicago and what is happening right now with the teachers union because the teachers are refusing to go back to work because they claim they don't want to risk getting COVID, right? Now, of course, these teachers are being paid the same amount of money to stay at home and barely teach online that they would be earning if they had to commute back and forth every day to a public school in Chicago. And clearly these bureaucrats, the teachers in Chicago couldn't give a damn about the students. They just want a paid vacation. And that's what's going on with the teachers union in, in, in Chicago. There is no incentive to go back to work as long as they can hide behind this excuse of it's too risky because we might get COVID. You know, I wonder what a lot of these Chicago school teachers are doing with all this free time. Are they going out and about? Are they interacting with other people? Are they going to other places where they're also risking getting COVID? Because if you can go uh, to a store, if you can go to a supermarket or a drugstore or wherever else they're going, or maybe they're going to a park or they're going to a beach, who knows where they're going, but I'm sure they're interacting with other people and they're risking getting COVID there. So why can't they risk getting COVID in the classroom? Because they don't want to work. That's why. And this is giving them excuse. In fact, one of the most ridiculous aspects of the excuse, and I read an article about this, is that the Chicago teachers are claiming that the demand that they actually go back to work and that kids be allowed to return to the classroom is racist, right? It's racist 
that Chicago teachers should have to go and work in a classroom. And you might say, Peter, well, how could it possibly be racist? Well, they're claiming that it's the white parents who want to send their kids back to school. And it, and this, the teachers are predominantly black. And so it's these white privileged racists that just want to send their kids to school and endanger the black teachers, which is sheer nonsense. And I think they're basing it on the fact that there was a survey out there and something like 60% of the uh, white parents wanted to send their kids back to school uh, and only 30% or something like that of, of the black parents wanted to send their kids back to school. So somehow they were saying that if we reopen the schools, it's gonna mainly benefit the white parents or the white kids. And so that's why it's racist, which is so ridiculous because first of all, going back to school benefits all the kids. I mean, I don't care if some of the parents don't think it's a good idea. I think those parents are likely wrong. I think it's better for the kids to be in school than not in school. But I think if you just look at the sheer numbers, if you just look at the percentage of the kids in Chicago public schools who are white, even though a lower percentage of black parents want their kids back in school, that's a bigger number. So there are more black kids who are being kept out of school against their will than white kids. And of course, the same applies to Hispanics. In fact, I think there's more Hispanics in the public schools there than whites and blacks. Uh, so are the Hispanics a bunch of racists because they want to send their kids to school? This whole thing is a bunch of nonsense. It's all about making excuses for not having to work, which again, people don't like to work, so I don't blame them, right? I mean, people work because they need the money. That's why they go to jobs. I mean, some people have very fulfilling jobs and they, they really enjoy working and they look forward to going to work, right? And they're happy in the morning when, you know, the alarm uh, goes off and they get out of bed and they have to go to work and they're really excited and they look forward to Mondays, right? They're like, thank God it's Monday so I can go to work, right? There are some people like that, but then there's a lot of people who hate it when that alarm goes off in the morning. They look forward to Friday, Thank God it's Friday, right? That's it, the weekend, right? People look forward to the weekends, right? Not, not, not to Monday, right? So those are the people, obviously, if the government gives them an opportunity to have every day a weekend, well, that's what they're going to do. So no, I don't want to return to work. I, I don't want to risk getting COVID. And so yes, here's where you send my unemployment checks. And of course, you now create an incentive because all these people who get a free vacation, they never want this COVID pandemic to go away. They want it to be here forever. They never want to be in a situation where they say, okay, COVID's no longer a risk. Because if in theory, COVID's no longer a risk, well, maybe they have to go back to work. But I think we're setting a very dangerous precedent because today it's COVID, tomorrow it's something else. Once you set the precedent that it's unfair to make people choose between accepting risks that they don't want to assume and going to work and earning a living, you're basically telling people that you have a right to, to income without having to work, that you can make a choice that you'd rather not work because working subjects you to things that you don't want. 
And why force people to make a choice to do something they don't want to do? If people don't want to work and they want to stay at home and just have a lot of leisure, nobody should deny them that choice and they should be able to get paid even though they're not working. That is the moral hazard. That is the principle that we are creating that is going to bankrupt this nation. There's going to be runaway uh, money printing, which again, this is exactly what should be driving people to buy gold and silver, not dump it like they did this morning. When you're running your own small business, HR issues can be a killer. I spent a lot of time on my podcast talking about all the perils and pitfalls of being an entrepreneur in America. It's almost like you've got a target on your back, wrongful termination suits, discrimination, minimum wage laws, labor regulations, you name it. And HR manager salaries to help you deal with it ain't cheap at $70,000 a year or more. Bambi, that's B-A-M-B-E-E, was created specifically for small businesses. You can get a dedicated HR manager, craft the HR policy for you, and help you maintain your compliance all for just $99 a month. With Bambi, you can change HR from being your biggest liability to your biggest strength. Your dedicated HR manager is available by phone, email, or real-time chat from onboarding to terminations. They customize your policies to fit your business and help you manage your employees day-to-day, all for just $99 a month. And it's month-to-month, no contracts, no hidden fees, and you can cancel any time. You didn't start your business because you wanted to spend time on HR compliance. So let Bambi do it for you. You can get a free HR audit today. So go to Bambi.com gold right now to schedule your free HR audit. That's spelled B-A-M-B-E-E dot com slash gold. I also want to talk about some of the nonsense that I listened to as I watched uh, CNBC Bubble Vision during the week as everybody is covering what's going on in the markets. And I did hear the word bubble spoken a lot more often than normal. In fact, I saw a lot of people who were interviewed to talk about the stock market acknowledge that it's a bubble. But the interesting thing about everybody who said the stock market was a bubble, they also said that nobody should get out and they're not advising that people get out. And the reason they're saying this is because they're confident that the bubble is going to get a lot bigger. And so nobody wants to leave the party early. So yes, it's a bubble, right? Hey, the music is playing. We know it's going to stop eventually, but as long as it's playing, We got to dance, right? That is the attitude. But of course, that is the humorous that defines every single investment bubble, right? Everybody who knows it's a bubble, and of course, there are a lot of people who don't know it's a bubble, right? And so they're just completely clueless. But then there are people who do know it's a bubble, and but they don't want to get out because they're afraid of missing out on the party or, you know, being made fun of by the people who are enjoying the party and you're there, you know, missing out on it. And so all these people always think that they're going to know when to get out. But that is impossible. I mean, by definition, it's impossible. Because if there is going to be a sign that's so obvious that you know when to get out, 
it's not just obvious to you, it's obvious to everybody else, right? Because I mean, you don't have any special, you know, ability to detect the top. So if whatever happens uh, makes it obvious to you that this is the end of the party, this is as big as the bubble is going to get, well, everybody else who knows it's a bubble is going to see the same thing. But the problem is all these people can't get out. What makes it a bubble is nobody wants to get out and that everybody's getting in. But if something happens so that a lot of people all of a sudden want to get out at the same time, it's impossible and the market crashes. That's why the only way to leave the party is to do it early. But that's why it's so difficult because nobody wants to leave the party early, so very few people do. Now, of course, what I think actually, again, is the risk is not really that this stock market bubble implodes, even though that definitely is a risk, and I think it's a risk worth avoiding. But I don't think it is the biggest risk. I think the biggest risk is the dollar crashes instead of the stock market. Now, if that happens, the stock market still crashes, but only in real terms, right? Priced in gold or maybe priced in foreign currencies or other assets, but not in U.S. dollars. So, but either way, whether the U.S. stock market crashes in real terms or in nominal terms, you might as well get out because it's still a crash. You're still going to suffer losses one way or another. You want to avoid it. And the reason that I am more confident that it's the dollar that crashes and not the stock market is because the government cares a lot more about the stock market than the dollar, right? They don't want the stock market to crash. They don't want the real estate market to crash. They don't want asset prices to crash because they know what that means, right? They know that we have this whole phony economy built on the wealth effect and an asset bubble. They know that. And they know if the market goes down and that illusion of wealth goes away, so does the recovery. They know that. So they need to keep asset prices elevated at all costs. And so to do that, they are willing to sacrifice the value of the dollar. And part of that is because they don't actually think the dollar can fall very much. And they think if it does fall, they don't even see that as a problem. I mean, many of them think that's a, that's a positive, right? That it's going to help our exports uh, and that a little bit more inflation will be good for the economy. So they don't even see the risks of a dollar going down, but they do see the risks of the stock market going down. And even if the dollar goes down a lot more than they think, and even if it ends up creating a problem, well, hell, they'll just blame that on somebody else, right? They'll blame it on speculators, uh, greedy corporations, the Chinese. I mean, who knows, right? But if the stock market crashes right now because the Fed starts hiking interest rates, well, everyone's going to know who to blame. But if it ends up being a dollar crisis, the public is a little bit uh, uh, less likely to understand the real origin of that crisis. And again, the dollar crisis they potentially see as something that's further on the horizon. A stock market crash would have immediate effect on the economy and on consumption. So politicians are always willing to trade long-term pain for short-term gain, which is why I'm confident that they will sacrifice the dollar to keep this bubble from imploding, which means when you recognize that it's a bubble, you can't just get out and hold U.S. dollars 
because you may be at greater risk in the dollar than in the U.S. stock market because the dollar can lose even more value than stocks as the government cranks you know, up the printing presses to prop up the nominal price of stocks. So you got to follow up on our strategy. You got to get into foreign stocks and the stocks that aren't in bubbles, stocks that are fairly valued as measured by their earnings and their dividends. And you got to get into uh, assets that will benefit from all this inflation, uh, companies that own a lot of resources and commodities. You got to focus on precious metals and the mining companies. So there's a whole playbook for how to handle the economic environment that we are in and the one that we are going to be in, uh, in the near future and the years ahead, you just can't go into cash. And of course, you just can't stay into the U.S. stock market because you're going to lose either way. Because even if U.S. stocks don't crash in nominal terms, they're going to crash in real terms. And so your purchasing power is still going to be diminished. So you have to be proactive now and you have to get out of both U.S. stocks and U.S. dollars. In fact, I heard another ridiculous stock market analyst talking about the political landscape now that the uh, Democrats control the Senate, but that their you know majority is very thin, right? It, there's just one vote, uh, and that's the the, the uh, vice president breaking the tie. And this guy was like, "Oh, we've got the best of both worlds. This couldn't be better," because he said that the fact that the Democrats are in control means that a lot more government spending is going to get passed. Uh, so we're going to have bigger increases in government spending than we might have had had there been some stronger Republican opposition to that spending. But because Republicans are more likely to oppose tax hikes than spending hikes, which unfortunately is true, it will be harder for Biden to get through as big a tax hike as he might ordinarily like if the Democrats had a wider margin uh, in the majority. And so the conclusion was we're going to get even bigger increases in spending, but smaller increases in taxes. And that's the best of both worlds because we get a double dose of stimulus. We get more government spending and we get less taxes. So we have all this extra money and this is great for the economy. It's lousy for the economy. Now, I understand why they think it's great for the market because the only thing the market's got going for it is inflation, stimulus. And so if you think we're going to have more inflation, more stimulus because of bigger budget deficits, well, then you think that's great. But if you actually understand the consequences of these bigger deficits being monetized by an even bigger uh, QE program and more money printing, more inflation, you realize how counterproductive this is. But it is not the best of both worlds for the U.S. economy or the U.S. stock market, but it is the best of both worlds for gold and silver. It is the best of both worlds for my investment strategy of investing internationally in foreign stocks in both developed and emerging markets and having a commodity focus. It's just you don't have enough people on CNBC smart enough to figure that out. And I think talking about people not smart enough to figure stuff out or about bubbles, I think is a really good segue uh, to discussing Bitcoin because I, you know, I got to talk about it again. We've had a lot of volatility in Bitcoin over the last few days. Remember, Bitcoin got up to almost 42,000 
uh, a Bitcoin. And then last night, it actually traded below 29,000, which is still a ridiculously high price, but that represents a 30% decline uh, from its recent peak, which is a pretty big drop if you happen to buy some Bitcoin uh, above 40,000. It certainly doesn't feel like a safe haven or a store of value if your Bitcoin is worth 30% less than what you pay. Now, of course, all the Bitcoin pumpers say, hey, volatility is just the price you pay to, to get rich, right? This It's a guarantee that Bitcoin is going to go up. So you just have to be willing to ride out this volatility and you're going to get rich. Of course, there is no guarantee. Bitcoin can collapse. It could fall and then keep falling. It's just that all these hodlers have been conditioned to think that after every big drop is a new rally because so far, that's how it's worked out. But, you know, there's an old saying in the investment game, past performance is no guarantee of future success. And that is especially true when it comes to bubbles because there's only so big a bubble can get before it deflates for good. Now, we don't know that size yet when it comes to Bitcoin. Is it possible that that 42,000 was the top? Yeah, it is possible. I mean, I thought 20,000 was the top for a while and it turned out not to be. So maybe it's 42,000 or maybe it's some bigger number. I don't know. I'm not smart enough to figure that out. But what I am smart enough to know is that it is a bubble and that it is going to crash. One guy though, who's clearly not is this guy, Michael Saylor from MicroStrategy. I mean, I'm seeing this guy all over the place. He is doing so many interviews. He's on every YouTube channel. He's on every financial channel. He is pumping his book. He is singing the praises of Bitcoin to everybody who will listen. And of course, the reason he has to do this is because he owns so much Bitcoin. He needs to pump it, right? He needs to get more people to buy it because that's the only way to get the price to go up. After all, nobody actually needs to use Bitcoin. Bitcoin has no actual value, so there's no natural buyer. The only way to convince people to buy it is to con them into thinking they're going to get rich if they do it. So he is out there trying to get all these speculators to buy Bitcoin. And in the process, he says the most ridiculous things. But a couple of things in particular I want to focus on, which I think you know really highlights the absurdity of it are some of the things that he's saying about Bitcoin that actually undermine the case for Bitcoin that he thinks he's making. One of them has to do with how difficult it supposedly is to buy it. See, he's talking about all these institutions that are coming into Bitcoin now because these other instruments like hedge funds or uh, Grayscale or potential ETF uh, are making it easier for institutions and now that fidelity is coming in and they're going to act as custodian because he's saying you know it's very difficult it's very cum cumbersome to actually have your own wallet and custody your own bitcoin and so a lot of institutions or larger investors don't want to do it they don't want to take that kind of risk but now that you have all these third parties involved that are charging all these fees now all of a sudden bitcoin is a lot more appealing to those investors Think about that for a minute. It's the introduction of third parties and higher fees that makes Bitcoin appealing. Now, I've known about Bitcoin from the beginning, as a lot of people like to point out, right? I've really missed the boat because I knew about Bitcoin when it was, you know, 10 bucks or lower actually than that. But if you go back to the beginning, 
one of the main selling points of Bitcoin was that you didn't need any third parties. That, you know, having a third party store your gold, oh, that was really expensive. And then you had to trust this third party. And the beauty of Bitcoin was you do it all yourself. You just have a wallet or you get your Bitcoin and you own it. It's yours. You don't have any third parties. Nobody is charging you any fees, right? That was a big selling point. Hey, you know, you can't do that with gold. But now, Sailor is actually saying what makes Bitcoin so good is that you can have third parties stored for you and charge you a lot of money. In fact, what the third parties are charging you to store your Bitcoin is much more than any third party is going to charge you to store your gold. So if it's more expensive to store Bitcoin than gold, why is storing Bitcoin better than storing gold? When you're storing gold, you're actually storing something. And when you're storing Bitcoin, you're storing nothing. So that's one point where he's actually making the case against Bitcoin while he thinks he's making the case for Bitcoin. And the other one has to do with regulation. I'm seeing him now on being on these interviews talking about all the enhanced regulation on Bitcoin, specifically anti-money laundering, AML, and know your customer KYC, and the extra regulations that are likely to come from the Biden administration, which is obviously much more prone to regulate than was, was Trump. And so Saylor is basically saying, oh, you know, this is going to be good for Bitcoin to be treated just like any other asset. After all, you know, there's KYC and AML for banks, for other investments, when you buy stocks and when you buy any other investment, you know, you still have to deal with all this regulation. So why should it be any different for Bitcoin, right? If AML and KYC doesn't stop people from buying stocks, you know, why should it stop people from buying Bitcoin? Except one of the main reasons to buy Bitcoin was the lack of KYC and AML. I remember from the beginning, that was the big case in favor of Bitcoin, that the traditional banking system, there was all this regulation. You lost all your privacy. There was all this government. You had to fill out all these forms. And all of that regulation, complying with all that regulation, added to the cost of transacting in dollars or euros or yen. The benefit of Bitcoin, this decentralized cryptocurrency that didn't require the banks, was that you can move uh, Bitcoin around from person to person, you could use it as a way to transfer value or as payments without having to go through all that regulatory red tape. There was no KYC, there was no AML, and therefore there was no cost. And so what made Bitcoin supposedly uh, good as a superior payment network is that you avoided all the extra costs of using traditional banking. Well, now, if you don't avoid any of those costs, if the costs are just as high, and in fact, I believe they will be higher. I think the nature of Bitcoin itself and the fact that there is a greater stigma uh, and a greater red flag with respect to Bitcoin than other assets uh, when it comes to AML concerns, I think that the regulatory costs of Bitcoin, of dealing in Bitcoin, will exceed 
traditional banking or currencies. So it's going to be a lot more expensive. Forgetting about the electricity and all the costs of verifying the transactions, because of the regulatory costs that need to be passed on to the end user, it won't be more economical to transact in Bitcoin. It will be more expensive. So again, that completely destroys the original reason to want Bitcoin. Now, of course, now, you know, nobody's even pretends that we're going to use Bitcoin as a payment mechanism, even though it's a cryptocurrency. Everybody says, well, we're not going to use it as a currency because we can't. Now it's supposedly digital gold, right? That keeps being the narrative. Digital gold, digital gold, digital gold, except it's nothing like gold because gold is a real element. It is a metal that is used in all sorts of ways and Bitcoin isn't used in any way. And, you know, one of the reasons that gold is so valuable is because it is scarce, but scarcity alone is not what makes it valuable. It's that it's scarce and extremely useful. People want it and there's not a lot of it. And that's why the price is very high. Bitcoin may be scarce, but that doesn't matter if you don't need it for anything. Because if something has no real use, it doesn't matter how much there is. But I want to talk about one of the big you know, PR campaigns about the supposed scarcity of Bitcoin. And of course, you know, I put this out on Twitter and I get all sorts of reactions. You know, I've never seen, or in this case, read, you know, so many ridiculous comments other than the ones that are coming from the people who are supporting Bitcoin. I mean, of course, in every bubble, there's a bunch of nonsense and people have to believe in crazy things to justify the bubble, but nothing as crazy as this. I mean, I've never seen people, and in many cases, smart people, so dumb <laughs> as it is for the people who are trying to justify Bitcoin and why Bitcoin is, is better than gold. Everybody likes to talk about the fact that the maximum number of Bitcoin that will ever exist is 21 million, right? And so this is supposed to be a scarce number because, you know, there are billions of people in the world and there's only 21 million Bitcoin. So not nearly enough for everybody. So you better get yours while you can, right? Because there's billions of people and only 21 million Bitcoin. Well, first of all, 21 million is still not a small number, especially if nobody wants a Bitcoin, Right? But if you think everybody's going to want to get some and there's billions of people, then 21 million you know, seems like a small number. Except you have to realize that Bitcoin simply represents an arbitrary quantity of Satoshis. Because what Bitcoin really is, is Satoshis. And what a Bitcoin is, is 100 million Satoshis. So if you have 100 million Satoshis, you have one Bitcoin. But since each Bitcoin can be broken up into 100 million Satoshis, the real supply of the cryptocurrency is defined by the number of Satoshis, not the number of Bitcoin. So if there are 100 million Satoshis in each Bitcoin and there are 21 million Bitcoins, what is the total supply of Satoshis? 2.1 quadrillion. So if there are 2.1 quadrillion Satoshis out there, there's plenty of Satoshis to go around, right? Everyone in the world who wants Satoshis can buy some. There is no shortage of Satoshis. There are quadrillions of Satoshis, right? And that's a three, three zeros above trillion. 
right? Could trillion. I mean, maybe one day we'll get there with the national debt. We're not quite there yet, but we we are there or will be there uh, with Satoshi. So if the Bitcoin world focused on the supply of Satoshis at 2.1 quadrillion rather than the supply of Bitcoin at 21 million, clearly they wouldn't seem nearly as scarce, right? So this is all part of the the propaganda. Now, of course, the Bitcoin people will always try to say, oh, wait a minute, that's not true because gold, you know, can be broken down. You could take a gold coin, an ounce of gold, and you could break it down into grams or maybe even subgrams. And that doesn't make gold any less scarce because you can divide it. And that's true. But there's a huge difference between dividing gold and dividing Bitcoin. You see, what's scarce about gold is the weight of gold. Because gold is actually used for things, how much you have is important. Now, let's you know focus on jewelry because about 50% of the gold production each year, I think, is, is used for, for jewelry. So if you're making jewelry, you need a certain amount of gold, right? The more gold you have, the more jewelry you have, right? So if I have an ounce of gold... I can make twice as much jewelry as if I have a half ounce of gold. And if I need an ounce of gold to make a particular item of jewelry, a half an ounce isn't enough. I need to buy another half ounce if the item that I'm making requires a whole ounce of gold. I can't make it with a half ounce. I mean, not if I'm trying to make it of the same quality. So dividing gold doesn't reduce its scarcity or make it less scarce because if you have less gold, you can do less with it because you can make less stuff with that gold. But when it comes to Bitcoin, since Bitcoins don't do anything, there's no weight of Bitcoin. You don't need Bitcoin for anything. The whole idea is people want to get some Bitcoin. Well, they don't really need Bitcoin. They just need Satoshis, right? If you want to get your hands on some Satoshis, there's 2.1 quadrillion of them out there. And it doesn't matter whether you have one or a thousand because a thousand is just as worthless as one because you can't do anything with them. But if the idea is that, well, you know, this thing is scarce, people have to get it. Nobody has to buy an entire Bitcoin. You can keep peeling off Satoshis. So we're not going to run out of Satoshis when you got 2.1 quadrillion of them out there. And a lot of these Bitcoin guys still can't get past the fact they say, well, if you have a pizza... And I, you know, I slice it uh, in eighths. You know, I don't have eight times as many pizzas because I just got a smaller slice. Yes, because the pizza is food that is nourishing you. So yes, if I slice a pizza into eighths and I eat an eighth of a pizza, I'm not going to get as full. I can't just have a small slice of the pizza. Obviously, it has less value than the entire pizza. But that's not the case with. Bitcoin, it doesn't matter how much or how little. It doesn't matter how many Satoshis you have or how few. If you got a Satoshi, you got a Satoshi because you can't do anything with them anyway. Now, people will say, but wait a minute. If I have, you know, two Bitcoin, I can sell it and get twice as much money as I can if I sell one Bitcoin. Yes, that is true for now, right? Because there are speculators who are willing to pay money to buy Bitcoin. So clearly they will pay more money to buy two Bitcoins than one, right? They'll pay twice as much money. So in that respect, you know, 
having more Bitcoins means you could sell and get more money. But let's look at a world where nobody wants Bitcoins uh, for speculation anymore, right? Then you just have Bitcoin. Well, does it matter how many you have? Does it matter whether you have a full Bitcoin or a half a Bitcoin or even a tiny Satoshi? No. If no speculators want to buy Bitcoin, it doesn't matter how few you have or how many you have. That's not the case with gold because gold is going to be used. In fact, you know, when I put the tweet out and I point this out, like I I pointed out the fact that the reason an ounce of gold is worth twice as much as a half ounce of gold is because you can make twice as much jewelry with an ounce of gold as you can with a half. And I point out that the only value in Bitcoin or the only buyers of Bitcoin are speculators. And if there's no speculators, there's no buyers. And people are saying that's the same thing with gold. There are people out there that think that there's no use for gold, that the only people buying gold are speculators. And if people didn't want to speculate on the price of gold, there'd be no demand for gold. That is sheer nonsense. There is always demand for gold because gold is being used all of the time. And here is the key thing that makes gold so valuable. Yes, the majority of the gold that is held uh, as bullion is held by investors. But what gives that gold bullion value today is the potential use of that gold in the future indefinitely because it holds its value indefinitely. And no matter what the investment demand for gold is, there will always be industrial demand, regardless of the price. There will always be demand for jewelry, regardless of the price. So if during times of inflation and monetary debasement, more people want to hold higher quantities of gold and they drive up the price, that is not going to deter gold from being used in industry or in jewelry. Those users are price takers. They are going to have to take the price regardless of what it is because gold is that valuable. Gold is that useful. Now, of course, as the price gets higher and higher in circumstances where gold can be substituted for metals that are not quite as good, but might do the job, just not do it as well. Let's say copper. Yes, it's going to happen. That is why being a luxury good is so important. Because when it comes to luxury goods, price is not an object. Rich people are always going to buy luxury goods, even if those goods become more expensive. They're not as price sensitive as poorer people who have to stop buying something if it gets too expensive. Wealthy people are not going to stop buying jewelry, no matter how expensive that jewelry gets. Now, it's possible that some of the jewelry could have a lower gold content if gold got that expensive, but there would still be some content. So there's always buying. But the point is that people refuse to see the difference. And especially a guy like Michael Saylor, who I hear him talking about how beautiful Bitcoin is, how pristine. It's the greatest asset ever. It's the most valuable asset ever. I mean, people are saying, hey, you know, how else can you transfer wealth into the future? What if you want to leave wealth for your kids? How do you do that? There are plenty of ways to do that. The worst way to do that is with Bitcoin. Who has any idea if anybody is going to value Bitcoin in the future? It's only been around for 10 years, and the only people who want it now are speculators. And it's nothing but speculation to try to bet that people in the future are going to want to speculate on Bitcoin just as much as people want to speculate on it now. 
because there isn't going to be an actual use for it. On the other hand, people have been using gold for thousands of years. It isn't a speculation to assume that something that's gone on for thousands of years will continue to go on, especially when you understand the actual properties of gold as a metal that make it so special. But apparently all the people that are so in love with Bitcoin and think they're so smart when it comes to understanding Bitcoin understand nothing about gold. And that is the problem, because if you don't understand gold and money, then that's why you could be so confused about Bitcoin. And every time I try to educate these people and try to introduce some common sense and some economic understanding into the dialogue, all I get is, okay, boomer, and enjoy being poor.